Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour for our final guest, James Holtzauer, playing the Jeopardy theme song because James is the current Jeopardy champion. He's all over the news because he's eclipsing the earnings marks. He's over $2 million now in just over in just 27 games. The all-time leader, Ken Jennings, won 2-5, but he did that in 74 games. So the rate is impressive and not hard to extrapolate out to a new a new all-time high. James, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. James, where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Las Vegas. Well, appreciate you getting up that early and, and being with us. And also, your life has to be a little crazy. It has to be a little crazy for a couple of months now. Can you tell us a little bit about what your what your routine is and what kind of attention? I think we just heard that you're getting attention from front offices and professional sports. I mean, what's day-to-day look like for James Holzhauer these days? Yeah, you know, I can't really talk about specifics about that, but there are, you know, constantly a flood of new things in my inbox every day, I'll tell you that much. Um, Day-to-day, you know, I try to keep to my normal life. There's a lot more people stopping to talk to me in the grocery store than there used to be, but uh, Mm -hmm. other than that, you know, I'm still taking my kid to the playground, uh, going about my daily life mostly normally. Mm -hmm. So how how long ago did you start this run? Uh, so the episode started taping back in February, but the first one aired April 4th. Got it. So um, tell us a little bit about how you approached this from the beginning. You've got a sports betting background. And so the the cognoscenti are all, all excited about you're doing these things differently than historic contestants have done it. So you're kind of exploiting the structure of the game. You must have thought this through thoroughly before. And can you tell us a little bit about your mindset going into the going into the thing? Yeah, so I think that the average contestant watches Jeopardy at home and sees, oh, people are playing in a certain way, and I, I don't know if they think that's the correct strategy or they just don't want to seem too offbeat by playing it differently, so they go on and play the same way they see everyone else doing it. And, you know, what I was thinking is, you get one shot at this. If I want to maximize my performance on the show, what do I do? You know, I don't copy anyone else's strategy. I just build from the ground up what I think is the best way to approach the game. And I think that's similar to how I approach gambling. You know, you see people come up with their, oh, you know, this is a trend for these games to go over lately. But, you know, if there's no good mathematical reason why that should be true, then you ignore that and you go with what your math says is the right move. Mm -hmm. So, James, this is Eric Bradlow. I've got a whole set of questions for you since I'm a massive fan of Jeopardy. And um, for for a couple of reasons, I've had a couple relatives on the show, including a cousin who won not just a measly three times, but certainly more than zero. Um, when you're playing, are you trying to maximize your payout, or are you trying to maximize the probability of winning? Because those are two very different things, and I'm just wondering, especially now, I think it's actually up to 28, or at least as far as we know on us watching, you it's up to 28. Than, yeah, yeah, but he's not, he can't tell us what happened in ones that have taped. Do you maximize your payout, or do you try to maximize the probability of winning? You know, I think that's, in many ways, the two are actually connected, uh, if you look at the way I play, it seems really aggressive, but uh, I think that I'm such a huge favorite to get a daily double right that it really makes sense for me to be making a big bet. Now, there, there's some instances like when I have uh, I hit the third daily double of the game and I'm way ahead, you know, there are times when people say I could be betting more aggressively than I am, but to me it's not worth risking a 1% chance of losing the game for an extra few thousand bucks. You know, that's, uh, 
the expected value of future games is so high that you know I want to keep the win percentage at 100 percent and you know bet a little bit to pad the win. Yes, but um, so I would not say that I'm particularly going for either. But I guess as a gambler mentality, more dollars won means more than more episodes won. It's gr- it's growing exponentially. So if you have to think about it in terms of future betting, it's it's you, you can't take a chance of getting kicked out, losing by by uh, making an overbet. But my question is: so in the in the early rounds, do you do you, what is your strategy for for bet size? Is it proportional in some way to how much you have? Uh, yeah. So I, I've moved all in on almost every daily double I've hit in single jeopardy, and I think that is both the right move for me to maximize my winnings and maximize my chance of winning that game. Because uh, if you don't have a big lead, now you're leaving things up to chance in Final Jeopardy. It reminds me of, you know, a team that has a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter of a game, and they just call conservative running plays instead of trying to uh, go for a gambly first down and ice the game right there, which is probably their mathematically best uh, move. They don't feel like uh, it doesn't feel like a safe strategy when you're watching. Right. I think that that you know the difference is very important there. So, James, this is uh, Eric Bradlow again. I was wanted to ask you, um, a lot of times when I'm watching the show, you know, you kind of get a sense. Of, uh, by the way, I wish that in Jeopardy for the fans watching, they put a clock on the screen so we knew how much time is left. But it seems, have you ever sure. thought about, let's make it up, you're 2.3 times the next highest contestant. So right now, if you went to Final Jeopardy and you bet properly, you have a 100% chance of winning. Have you ever thought about slowing down? Like, why go for the big numbers? Why not go for the smaller numbers? Just eat up clock. Try to. This gets back to my same question about that might maximize the probability of winning. Do you ever think about slowing down because you know you can't get caught or you lo- minimize the probability of getting caught from behind by somebody else? You know, that seems like dirty play to me. And also, I think that the producers have leeway in how much dead air they can edit out of the episode. So maybe I'm not even sure that would work if I tried it. But I don't know. It goes against the spirit of the game. No, I even just meant choose lower amounts. Those, you know, it takes oh. the same amount of time to read a $200 question as it does a $2,000 question. You know, you tend to go from bottom to top as opposed to the classic top to bottom strategy. Once you have a big enough lead, why not start pulling the ones at the top and see how much time that can eat up? Uh, well, you know, I mean, the show almost always gets through all the clues or all but one clue anyway, so I don't think this particularly makes more of a difference. But, you know, to me, I, I feel like I play fine under pressure and maybe uh, just calling the big money clues right away when I think I can answer them and maybe someone else who's distracted by the game situation might work out well for me. It's it's not really something I think about during the game. It's distracting, I, I believe, to pay such close attention. All right, so, so I have a question about sort of betting strategy. And first of all, you, so imagine you were up, say, 3-2. to two. Your ratio was 3-2 to two going into Final Jeopardy. My first question, of course, is how often did that that happen where you were in danger of losing if you didn't get the, the, the Final Jeopardy? And the, the, the second would be like, well, how do you decide what to bet in that situation? So there's been three games out of 29 so far where I had less than double the second-place money. Uh, each one carried its own significance. Um, last Thursday, there was a game where uh, the second-place contestant had over 80% of my stack, and you know I was definitely going to bet to, to cover him if he went all in. So his best move was to bet a little smaller, which he did, and if, uh, if both of us had gotten it wrong, or if he had gotten it right and I had gotten it wrong, he would have won. But we did both get it right. Uh, so it turned out to be an academic thing. But if I were trailing in that spot, I think, you know, it, it kind of becomes a game theory thing. But 99% of the time, the guy in first place is going to try to bet to win. So you just assume that that's the case and you try to figure out your best strategy based on that. 
So, James, let me ask you a question. Um, one of the things, of course, people have been asking, and I'm sure you get this all the time and might as well get it on this show too, um, what would happen if James Holzhauser went up against Ken Jennings? So, But my question more generally, without a specific prediction on your part, although we'd be happy here on Wharton Moneyball to hear your specific prediction, um, are there age curves in Jeopardy? You know, as Ken Jennings responded is, you know, yeah, I wish I were 30. I think you may be 34. I'd like to be 34 again. I don't want the 45-year-old Ken Jennings. Are there age curves in Jeopardy? Because we talk about age curves in sports all the time. Um, Yes, I could definitely see that your reflexes or your knowledge base erode over time. That said, Ken was just on the show three months ago, and he was sharp as a tack and buzzing in really quickly. And, you know, except for Brad Rutter, the indomitable champion of the show, he had no trouble with anyone else. So I think that uh, if I were to go up against Ken now, it would be a great match and probably decided more by who gets the big daily double questions than anything else. Who discovers, who bumps into the big daily by accident. Yeah. 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 So can you tell us a little bit about um, how, what is the mechanics of this? So what, where, where does speed function in playing Jeopardy? So not all of us understand exactly how this works, but the first person to buzz in gets the opportunity. So how do you, how do you learn to do this and how do you train? And, yeah, there and, seems to be some sort of cadence to it where you have to anticipate exactly when the buzzer is going to be available and hit it right then. Yeah, so you can't see this at home, but they have a, a perimeter of lights around the game board that go on when you're allowed to buzz in. And there's an employee uh, who his job is to sit, activate the lights and you know try to keep it with Alex's cadence so it comes up at the end when he's finished running the question. And you get a little bit of buzzer practice before taping starts for the day. You show up at about 7.15 to the studio, but they don't actually start taping an episode for three hours or doing a legal briefing, and then they give you uh, at least an hour of practice time so everyone gets a little familiar with it. Um, but I, I went going in, I read an ebook about how the Jeopardy buzzer works and, you know, the best ways to hold it. And you can see I'm adopting this thing they recommend in the book where you, you hold it really, uh, uh, I don't know, firmly, I would guess, in one hand and then hold your, use your other hand to steady the wrist of the buzzer hand. And that way you have no wasted motion. It's kind of like, you know, I think the way a hitting coach would instruct the batter to make sure that everything he does is working for his swing, you know, not because that difference in reaction time is really important when you get there. So, James, let me also ask you, um, do you study between tapings? Like, for example, do you, you know, are you a Bayesian updater about your knowledge? So you'll see a category on, you know, I don't know, classical music. And, you know, you, um, it's not even just that you weren't the one that buzzed in. Maybe you just say, wow, I don't really know much about that. And you say, that could be a category again. So how much are you investing in your, let's call it, off-court training for future episodes? Uh, so I had about three weeks of lead time before between when they called me and when I had to first go into the studio. And I will say I studied pretty hard during that time. Um, and what, what they do in the tapings, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this, uh, you have two days a week where they tape. Uh, it's typically Tuesday and Wednesday. You have five episodes on Tuesday, five episodes on Wednesday, and then at least five days off. Sometimes they take a whole week off. Uh, and to be honest, like when, when the taping procedure is going on, I miss my family so much during those two days, plus the travel time it takes me to get there that most of the rest of the week, I'm just spending soaking up time with my kid and my wife, uh, maybe studying a little. And, you know, if you really want to get Bayesian about it, you could think like, okay, I, well, I don't know much about classical music, but they just had a category about this. They're so probably not going to have one again for a month, maybe. And so I have a little mm. uh, time mm. before I really need to drill that. Well, related to that, um, when you see the categories pop up, do you say to yourself, aha, aha, 
I know a lot about this one. I'm going to build the big lead, which, by the way, may even put, given now you're a 28-29 time champion, may even put more pressure on my opponents. Do you strategically say, do you just literally rank order them from your prior beliefs of top knowledge to lowest knowledge and just go in that order? Or is there something more strategic than that? Although that's pretty strategic. You know, I wouldn't say I do exactly that. Um, you know, I've studied really hard for the show, and I feel like almost all the categories that come up on the show I'm pretty good at. There was one episode where they had a Monty Python phrases category, and I avoided that one every time I had the chance. Uh, but other than that, you know, if, if it's Jeopardy's been on a long time, you have a pretty good idea what kind of material is going to come up on the show and what you need to prepare for. So I was prepared for almost anything they could throw at me. We're talking to James Holtzauer. James is the current Jeopardy! champion. He's all over the news. Of course, he has eclipsed $2 million in earnings over 27 games. On his way, potentially on his way, to the record. Ken Jennings holds the record at 2.5. Of course, it took him 74 games to get there. James is also a sports better. I think we're going to get to hearing a little bit about that in a moment. So I wanted to drill down, drill down a little bit about the, the variance in your topic knowledge. So what you're implying is that there are some categories which you think you're nearly at 100% probability, or what I might call the batting average of your, of your success uh, probability, and there are others that are lower. So I think your overall, I saw the numbers. Some, 97%. Are you at 97%? My God. Is that what it is? Well, that's only... That is only the ones I buzz in on. You buzz so, in on. Right. Oh, so, so can you give me sort of a breakdown? If, for example, you were asked to answer every question, um, what is the variance f- from top to bottom on your, on your batting average by category, where 100, 100% or nearly 100% would be your best? And what was it, what did it go down to? And which ones you were, would you be avoiding? So you say Monty, <clears throat> yeah, Monty, Monty Python. Python was Would you be at 20% mentioned. on those? Um, you know. Uh, so the Monty Python category, I think they revealed three clues, and I knew only one of them. Of course, they, you know, we picked the three highest money value clues, so maybe the ones with top boxes would have been easier. I would say, like, of the subjects I would expect to come up on the show, it would range from, like, say, the NFL at 99% to, oh, I don't know, Irish poets at 50% or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah, Monty Python would probably be lower than that even. James, are people, are you seeing anybody else adapt? change their strategy in Jeopardy? Or do you, do you anticipate people in the future changing their strategy as a result of watching you? So there's a couple things. You know, all of the episodes that have aired so far, none of the people I've faced had a chance to see me on TV yet. They, uh, the episodes have taped in February and March, and as I said, I didn't go on until April. So people at the start of the day would hear, oh, James has won this many episodes and this much money, and they think there must be something going on. But really, until they see the first taping of the day, the Monday show tapes first, and if you're on the Monday show, you really don't have any time to uh, see what's going on, but you get to watch the ones that tape before you, so if you're on, like, say, Thursday's episode, you've seen three games, and you know the James Playbook is pretty much on display there, and they had the chance to adapt to it, and I feel like in most of the games, when someone else has control of the board, they are going for the big money clues, they are hunting for the daily doubles, which I think is probably the right way for them to play. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just building on Adi Weiner's earlier question, James, um, how re- how encouraging is it when you don't buzz in, and in fact, you're right, you didn't know the answer. Like, how much do you pay attention to that as the game is going on? Like, you know, wow, I'm really calibrated today. I'm buzzing in on the ones I know the answers to. I'm not buzzing in on the ones that I don't know the answers to. How, do you pay attention to that as the game's going on? Um, I guess. I, mean, I think it's a little distracting, but it is, uh, you know, there's something to that. Like, you feel good about your decision when you get that confirmation there. Of course, there have been plenty of times when I did not buzz in and I did, in fact, know it. So, you know, I try to at least be, I don't know, 60, 70% sure of my answer. 
So, so James, if, if I were the producer and I wanted to uh, make life rough for you, how would I do that? Would I do that by, by variation in category? Now that I've seen you play a bunch and I know what you know and what you don't know, would I start picking some categories like Irish poets and Monty Python and uh, maybe uh, Mel Brooks movies or something of that similar because I know you're weak on those categories? Or do I go with the, your, you know, the standard categories and make it harder? Which, which do you think is more, more trouble for you? It would be illegal for them to uh, change up a game show to try and aid a particular contestant or hamper one, so I'd, I'd rather not go into that because it could make Jeopardy sound bad. They're not doing anything below board like that. Oh, but hypothetically, come on. No, this well, is, let me ask you a question. <laughs> what, what would be trouble for no, you? No, I, right? I think, let me fr- reframe Adi's question here, but, but the same question. Which one would be harder for you? Harder ca- not, the show's not doing anything. Harder categories or harder opponents? Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, the the one thing they could do to really screw with me is just put an absolute stunner of a daily double in there that no one could possibly know. And then, you know, I would probably go down to zero just uh, on that. But, you know, I don't know. It's an academic exercise to me. They would never actually do this. Well, let, let's... You know what, uh, someone suggested that they could actually make all the questions really easy and then, uh, you know, any advantage I have in knowledge base is eroded and then I have to just purely win on the buzzer. <laughs> well, that's an int- it's a very interesting right. philosophy. Let's let's now talk about the transition. Now, you know, uh, our host Cade Massey talked about you're a professional sports better. Can you talk about the connections between sports betting and Jeopardy? Has has your sports betting career? Your obviously you have to have a knowledge of mathematics. You have to have a knowledge of when you have odds in your favor. The idea of expected payouts. Mm. All of this. But some of these kind of unconventional strategies that you're employing in Jeopardy were those motivated from sort of a sports betting experience? Yeah, I think a lot of it is an attitude shift. Um, you know, you have the idea that oh, this is ten thousand dollars in front of me. I would never risk ten thousand dollars on anything. But they're kind of like poker chips in a tournament you know that you don't get to cash in unless you actually win the tournament and you know they have this dollar value written on them but really that is meaningless unless you manage to get them in there and you you when you gamble for a living you kind of get the idea okay these are these are game pieces they're not dollars you know i can leverage these to my best advantage in this situation if i lose these game pieces that say they're worth ten thousand dollars oh well i'll pick myself up and keep playing um and also i think there's the idea of you know this how I approach sports betting, it's not just like, oh, I, uh, I like watching this team play. I'll bet on them. It's more, you know, there are factors here that other people don't see. And what, how can I dig up these factors and best uh, mathematically take advantage of that to make a profit? And this is just kind of like my whole attitude going into the show. So, James, you've written, um, I've re- it's been written about you at least, so I'm reporting what people have, have said, that your sports betting kind of uh, approach is uh, in-game. So in where you've written or it's been reported that, that that's where the biggest you know, missed lines are. It's hard to do an in-game line and you can take advantage. Are you building mathematical models or are you just uh, sufficiently sophisticated and good in your, in your head to figure out where things are, are off? Which is it? Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've never bet in-game on something that I'm not actually watching at the time because I think there might be a factor that a mathematical model might be missing. But um, there's definitely, like, an idea of if you're watching, you can understand why the odds would be off because the they're overrating some specific factor that the TV announcers are highlighting, for example. Um, I think that the in-game thing in general is just they're, they're you know, putting up odds they don't know what they're doing they're just tossing a number out there with uh, very little thought and it's not it's like the opposite of betting say an nfl point spread on sunday morning where people have had a whole week to analyze the number and uh bet all the advantage out of it 
Listen, James, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Wish you the best with the 